हेलो लिसनर्स आई एम तमन्ना फ्रॉम वॉटफिक्स एंड यू आर लिसनिंग टू द डिजिटल अडोप्शन शो सीजन टू इट वॉज एन इनक्रेडिबल सीजन वन ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट एंड वी पर्सनली लव योर फीडबैक ऑन दैट वी हैड अ चांस टू गेट सम अमेजिंग प्रोफेशनल्स लाइक लू टेट्रिक फ्रॉम वराइजन चार्ल जेनिंग्स फ्रॉम सेवेंटी ट्वेंटी टेन इंस्टीट्यूट एंड मेनी मोर सच पर्सनैलिटीज हु हैव डन एन अमेजिंग जॉब एट देर वर्क ड्यूरिंग दिस ईयर we thought that we would dazzle you all with some amazing lnd professionals from across the world with industrial experience you have never heard of so are you all excited i definitely am so let's begin the show the season 2 episode 1 features arijit das who's the sales director for emia at whatfix discussing with parth sushe who's the director digital learning at saint goben let's hear them out I am your host Arijit from Whatfix and it's my pleasure today to welcome our guest Bart Shooter. On this episode we talk about how to transform and not train your way to a better business strategy with L&D. Now with an engineering degree in computer science from Cornell and our guest Bart began with Accenture consulting his clients on new technology and today he's the director for digital learning at Saint Gobain and I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, that's a fascinating journey in itself and we'll get uh, more more about that in a bit. Uh, looking forward to this conversation today and to learn more about you and your strides as a practitioner on organization and learning welcome to the digital adoption show bart well thank you very much for having me arjit i'm very pleased to be here that's great uh but sengoben is is a name that needs no introduction of course uh, culturally and from an organizational level uh, how would you say sengoben differentiates itself in the manufacturing sector well um one of the things that differentiates us is just the wide variety of our products uh, as well as in general the fact that they're very local to their market so they have to be produced locally so we have many many different businesses with many many different uh constraints even though largely they're all in the same area which is building construction materials and uh, high performance materials I think that's one of the things that makes us different from other manufacturers, you know, like steel manufacturers or or others is that diversity. I think another thing that differentiates us is uh very much our internal culture which uh is very much one of trust and empowerment uh and you know i guess i can exemplify that by uh our you know our annual employee uh, engagement survey where our numbers are always completely different than what you hear in the marketplace we have a very very high level uh, of engagement of people and i th- and i'm pretty convinced personally that that comes from this high level of trust um that our executives give to everybody and empowerment all right that's that's actually good to know about thanks for sharing and I did notice that you are a big proponent of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I am as well myself, but do you think there's a certain fear or skepticism with regards to AI in the training world and why do you think that is? Um well I know I don't think there's a a big uh, fear. I think, you know, first of all you hear a lot of the uh, you know, software vendors continually talking about AI in their products in 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 their ability to recommend learning to people and personalize. Um I think amongst L&D people I haven't particularly heard uh much of a much of a of a fear I think you know for my own per, you know my own background we are using machine learning to differentiate it from artificial intelligence which can sometimes seem magical and scary machine learning is 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 very grounded in you know 
detecting patterns from data in the past to, so that you can make predictions about the future. And, and we use that in, in our plants and in our sales and marketing and in our supply chain. You know, I'm very positive about it. I think it tends to get overhyped in the, in the marketplace, um, but I'm positive about it as a, as a technology that can help you know, transform uh, Saint-Gobain. And, and I'll take the opportunity to add that, that I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the best and first step that companies can take around that is not as we did towards machine learning for the masses, but visualization. Because what we're seeing is that if you can make data visual uh, so that people can see it and so that it expresses the insights that are in that data, people can make much better decisions. And doing visualization is a lot easier than doing machine learning. All right, can you, can you unpack that a little bit more, Bart? That's interesting. Uh, on visualization, one of the things that we've observed in our plants is that if we can um, put a graphic up in front of an operator of what's happening immediately in the machines that they have to survey, uh, temperatures, position of, 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 of parts and, and things like that, they can more easily detect when something is going wrong. And when something does go wrong, they can more easily figure out, you know, what the problem is. Uh, for those of you who've never visited a large manufacturing plant, there are hundreds of different levers that an operator can control. There are lots of different machines. It's all moving very quickly. And, um, you know, so it's hard for operators to figure out what's going on unless the data is being presented to them in, in a visual way. Um, you know, and in the same way, um, our management needs to have the data presented to them. For example, one of the things that should be of interest to everybody right now, given the explosion in gas and energy prices, is a, um, a very up-to-date cost price spread um, you know, for all of your product lines so that you can anticipate, you know, what are we going to be paying in, in, you know, the weeks and months to come versus what are we currently pricing the product at and how do we have to adjust it to go forward? And um, one of our businesses recently came up with a way of visualizing that that made it very easy for management, easy, made it very clear to management of what the impact was and what they had to do to adjust. And we're now rolling that out, you know, literally around the world um, because of its ability to help businesses stay on top of that change. And so I think there are lots of, I'm convinced, supply chain, uh, sales and marketing, there are lots of areas where if we can make the data visual to people, then they can um, uh, make important decisions. I'll give you one more example. We have distribution centers around the world. Let's say one of our countries um, wants to know what's the, you know, what's the impact of putting a distribution center here? How would that change orders and manufacturing and things like that? And um, one of our projects began by trying to have a machine learning identify where is the best location to put that, right? To put, to put a distribution plant. But, but one of the pre, you know, the requiring, the prerequisite steps to doing that is to be able to anticipate for this location, if I put a new distribution center at this location, what would the impact be? Well, if we can do that, then very easily we can just let a manager use their own intelligence and say, well, I think I want to put it here. Show me the impact. Uh, you know, that's a much easier problem to solve. So those are just sort of some of the examples off the top of my head. Um, uh, I think there's huge potential. 
at, at many different levels from exploratory visualization to exploratory dashboards to KPI dashboards. And it's a real area of focus for me in 2022. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. And on that note, uh, because you come from a technology background, uh, do you feel your perspective or the lens with which you look at training and learning, it's slightly different than other L&D leaders, but? I think it is. Um, and I, you know, it comes from my deep understanding of the technology. So on the one hand, I'm not seduced by technology. On the other hand, I can imagine what technology can do in a way that some of my, you know, uh, peers uh, may have trouble doing. Uh, surprisingly, I'm not a big fan of deploying lots of different technologies around our enterprise. I want to have the fewest possible because users always have trouble learning, you know, new technologies and you want the experience to be as, you know, homogenous as possible. But, but so I think it's giving me that, that, that perspective to find the right balance um, of, of technology for our users. The other thing is because I came from the IT organization within Saint-Gobain, um, you know, I still have all of my contacts back there and it gave L&D this access into our IT organization that it didn't have before. And it's allowed us to do a lot of things that I know other companies have struggled with. All right. That's interesting. We'll actually unpack that a little bit more in a bit. But I also just want to see and check, uh, who do you see, what do you see as the biggest challenges today, uh, challenges today that are being confronted by L&D leaders and companies uh, in the coming years? Well, um, it's interesting because I've been doing quite a lot of thinking about that recently, getting prepared for 2022 and exchanging with colleagues. Um, you know, I think for everybody, every company would say, well, innovation, collaboration. Um, but we have to put, you know, meat behind that. We have to really make that um, real. Most people would say data. And I'm very pleased by the, you know, what we've been able to do with our data and analytics academy over the last couple of years. Um, but I think there's another area that's really important, which is critical thinking, uh, problem solving types of skills, um, problem identification types of skills. And there's been a lot of talk about this over the past uh, couple of years. I believe it is becoming increasingly critical. The challenge is, is how do you build those skills inside of people? And I don't have the answer for that, but that's going to be a big focus of mine uh, in the coming year. All right. That's, that's cool as well. And, and how is uh, Saint-Gobain addressing those challenges today? Well, so I would say, you know, all of these things you know, it's not just about training. You're really talking about transforming the company um, in terms of the, the skills, in terms of the culture, uh, in terms of how we organize. So, so I'm going to be inspired going forward by what we've done over the last couple of years with our Data and Analytics Academy. This was a, a program that we began in the middle of 2019 we recognize the opportunity, the need to upskill the engineers in our plants to be able to use machine learning on themselves without having to go to one of our research centers to find a data scientist. They needed to have the skills themselves to get insights out of the, the data that they have every day to continually improve production. And we, we knew that 
this was going to require a significant transformation in our organization. We needed to break down barriers between um, corporate IT and plant IT uh, and between our data scientists at our research centers. And so we started off by saying, what is the change we want to see? And then how do we make that happen? And training is a piece of it, but only a piece of it. And so we ended up building a program that had three key components to it in terms of the training, an awareness program for management, um, a core skills training for the engineers to teach them Python and machine learning, and then a mandatory learning by doing project that came from the real list of projects in the plant that allowed the engineers to then practice what they had only really sort of you know seen uh, during the core skills training um, and being supported by a data scientist from one of our research centers. So our core skills training, you know, it's 27 hours. They're, they're, they're programming in Python. They're doing the exercises, but they're literally sort of replicating what they see the instructor do. And that's not enough. They have to learn by doing. And that's what this learning by doing project is. The results have been astounding. Um, it's very difficult. I, I don't want to underestimate that. I'm incredibly, uh, you know, proud of the engineers and our plants in their ability to kind of stick with this and really uh, learn Python and really understand the life cycle of a, of a data and analytics uh, project. But at the end, what really matters is, you know, what are they able to do with it? And even in these first learning by doing projects, which are selected to be simple, you know, relatively a good learning experience, we're seeing people reduce the energy consumption on a line of production by over 10%. With traditional techniques, they've never been able to get more than like a 1% reduction. Um, we've seen them uh, reduce the excess use of material. Generally, what we're doing is we're getting better control over the production process so that it is more stable um, and so that we produce less defects, less waste. And all of this goes to the heart of Saint-Gobain's uh, sustainability objectives of reducing energy consumption and reducing CO2. And we're getting this, you know, in the first projects, out, you know, after this um, training program. So, and again, I come back to the transformation. We, 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 we rolled this out through the, the people in the business who were responsible for the performance in the plants. It was not rolled out as a training program. Training is a key part of it, but it was rolled out as we are transforming. Uh, individuals did not get enrolled in the program. Plants got enrolled in the program and plant management needed to attend the awareness training and they needed to be committed to the program. Um, and so that's how we're looking to do it as we roll it out as well into supply chain and into sales and marketing. And as I look at some of these other things that I want to do, um, I have to anchor it in some transformation that senior executives are, are behind and, it, you know, and going to, you know, give me the support and, the, and, and, you know, drive it down into their business. It, it cannot be driven down by L&D. Yeah, I agree with that, but and I think that leads us to uh, a topic that I think over the last 20 or even 50 years in, in training or organizational development or change management is what we talk about. The crux of all of this is the people, right? The mindset, the culture. So how do you get people to change? <laughs> well, that's, 
You know, it's it's a, a really good question. And um, when we began this project with data and analytics, um, we did this with McKinsey, and McKinsey shared with us a, a change model that they had that that really resonates with me. And it basically says if you want somebody to change, they have to understand. There are four things that have to happen. They have to understand what's expected of them, um, and 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 buy into it. Right? They have to buy into the change. They have to. You know, so for in this example, I have to agree as an engineer that it would be useful for me to learn data analytics. Um, I have to then be given the skills to do it, right? So the training. I have to then, the organization has to support me in what I'm trying to do and not be a barrier. And this is often where our organizational structures get in the way uh, for any sort of transformation. So the organization has to support them in making it easier for them to do the new thing than to do the old thing. And then fourth, and most importantly, is they have to see the people around them um, doing these new behaviors that are expected of them, and especially the senior leadership. And that's the most important point. When I joined Sangabat at the end of 2003, every management meeting would begin by the senior executives going through our health and safety numbers. We had a big focus at that point in time. We still do on health and safety. Every important meeting began by listing what, you know, what those safety numbers were and whether we were improving or regressing. And coming from the outside, it, I immediately understood health and safety was fundamental to Saint-Gobain. And so it needs to be the same way. If data and data analytics are really important to us, it has to be something that our senior leaders are talking about all the time and that they're, they're walking the talk in that when they make decisions, they're basing it on data and not on intuition, right? So that's the most important thing that has to happen if you want to get individuals um, to change. So you infer it's more a top-down cultural uh, percolation, right? This is what you mean here? Yeah, I think it has to come from many dimensions. Uh, you know, so for example, uh, we heavily use the 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 um, you know uh, the the use of champions, um, you know, uh, across the organization to be sort of on the ground, uh, uh, you know, uh, evangelists about something. But it's critical if I'm not getting the senior leaders to demonstrate, you know, that this is important, then the rest won't really happen. Um, and I guess just on that side of champions, I read an article the other day that was saying that, um, that uh, you know, in a study of lots of, of programs that you had, to, you had to get your champions network above a certain percentage. I forget what it was, but it was quite substantial in order for it to really have an impact. So that started changing my thinking about how I, how I do this. I have not been building a big enough champions network for some of the things I'm trying to do. All right. So, but just an interesting topic there. I, I want to unpack that more. So, the culture of an organization comes from the very top, of course. But do you infer that uh, senior management or mid-level management is where uh, the training community can, you know, uh, try to reemphasize that cultural aspect so that that percolates down? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I, mean, I think, you know, you can try to do things at a grassroots level, but it will only take you so so far, in my experience. Um, it has to come down from the top. And you're right, several levels down. It's not sufficient if the, if the CEO is being one way. You have to go down, you know, two, three, four levels. And the people there, those middle-level managers, they have to be practicing it as well. Um, 
I was thinking about this the other day and, and thinking about what it's like when we change companies and we go into a new company and we, and we have our certain art, the culture that we've carried from the old company. And then we're confronted by the culture of the new company. And uh, there's like a six month period where there's this, um, you know, this tension between sort of where you came from and where you're going, regardless of whether one is better than the other. It's just, it's different. And then you become absorbed in the new culture and, and, uh, and you, you know, you forget about it. And well, that, that culture, you can't just like wish it into being right. It, it, and so it really does come from, 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 from the, you know, the management It has to be ingrained in them. And uh, you know, if, you know, you can say the right words, but if you're not walking the talk, it doesn't really have any impact. Yeah, that's that's clear. I think that, that definitely helps. And just kind of moving to a different topic slightly, um, with respect to employee experience in, in driving successful digital transformation, what, what do you think is the significance of employee experience there? Um, well, you know, it's obviously very important, uh, but, you know, we, we, people approach the employee experience from many different dimensions. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about learning experience platforms, right? Um, which are all, you know, good and well, but if people aren't coming to the platform uh, to, to find what there is to learn, it doesn't really have much of an impact. In our company, What's really important is that the learning be as close to the moment of need, the on-the-job need, as possible. Um, and I'm trying to design all of my programs to really be about real things that I have to get that that there are people have to get done um, on the ground. And you know, so 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 the experience there is more from I as an employee, I have a need how quickly and how good is the experience that allows me to, you know, get the assistance that I need to, that I need to do what I need to get done and then get it done. And I use the word assistance to not say training because it can come from lots of different places. We've deployed teams over the last couple of years and we have lots of team spaces and Yammer spaces where people can go and, and get very quick answers to, to, to some of their problems or get somebody, you know, somebody can say, I've got to produce a pivot table, you know, and I don't know how to do this. Can somebody help me? And then somebody else can just quickly click on the call now button and they've got a meeting and they share their desktop. And in five minutes, the problem is resolved, you know, as L and D people encouraging those environments for collaboration and sharing and, Employees helping employees, I think, are is really important and as important as anything else uh, that that we're trying to do. Yeah, I think what you're harping on is, um, as I think the late great uh, economist Kenneth Arrow had put it in his research on learning by doing. He mentions that learning is a product of experience. Um, do you agree with that? Um, absolutely. <laughs> we we only learn um, by doing. Uh, that that lesson came home to me uh, this week. As um, you know, I, I, I'm responsible for our digital culture training, right? And we've been doing digital culture training for years. And, you know, I just sort of have reached the end of my imagination of what can we do. And, um, and then we're speaking to one of my Brazilian colleagues, and they were telling me about a program that they were rolling out, which was literally something that we had done in 2015 already. And I said, really, do people really need to and they go? Yeah, they still need that sort of stuff. So, I've been rethinking it. And then this week, 
um, I was invited to kick off an internal workshop for one of our businesses. Um, and they wanted me to kind of excite people around digital and the notion of no code for, you know, in 15 or 20 minutes. And then they were going to spend the next three hours using a no code tool to, to, you know, discover and to experiment. And this really anchored home for me, the fact that, you know, our efficient learnings that explain to you how the world is becoming digital in 20 minutes doesn't stick. It'd be much better communicate one key element of digital and then have people practice it and experience it in a way that makes it real for them and that will, and that they'll retain it. So as I'm thinking about what I do for digital culture for 2022, I'm thinking of designing it in that way with lots of many little activities that people can do, preferably in social groups that, that allow them to discover this element of digital, this element of digital, et cetera, rather than let me take sort of the, the fire hose and, you know, communicate everything they need to know about digital doesn't work. Yeah, but that's a good one. I'll, I'll actually give another example, more rudimentary than yours, where I have a four-year-old son. Um, and last month I was just trying to teach him how to ride a bike. And as much as I was trying to explain to him, hold still, hit the pedal. I realized the only way he'll do it is doing it, right? He has to get on it and do it and follow over a couple of times, but that's the only way he'll remember in return. It's, it's more yeah. about your uh, motor skills, right? Learning how to swim, learning how to drive. You don't forget it once you learn, but it's just yeah. building that muscle memory, I think. So uh, to your point, yeah, I totally agree with what you just said. Well, and, uh, and, and an interesting thing, because I was thinking about riding bikes this week, you learn mainly from the mistakes that you make as, a, as, you, as you're riding your bike. You know, if everything's going well, then, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't know how to handle a rough situation. And so it's, you know, you got to fall over a couple of times. And, and, you know, in the enterprise, that means we have to be, um, we have to be talking about what didn't work. And as learners, I was thinking about this just the other day about, you know, uh, intentional learning, where it's not just sufficient to kind of watch the YouTube videos and the TED Talks and stuff like that. You have to intentionally reflect on, on what you've just heard, integrate it back into other things that you've learned, decide some, you know, change in behavior that you're going to try to do, observe that, and then reflect on that later on. I mean, that's where change comes from. Just watching the TED video or going through the online learning or whatever, that doesn't, that doesn't create change. You have to actively reflect about it. Yeah, with you on that part, and I'll, you know, on that particular topic itself, it's, it's uh, something that I talk to a lot of L&D leaders about, which is if you expect your employees and you know, your colleagues, et cetera, to change and, and learn by making mistakes, psychological safety is, is a big aspect, right? Do you think uh, we are, or as an organization, we are, or as a community, for that matter, are we actually getting to that point where we are giving them that psychological safety? Huh. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to think so. Um, I know it's been a big, um, uh, one of the, the transformation programs that, that, that we've been going through at San Ben over the last couple of years is to, is this shift from, I like to describe it as from manager as controller to manager as coach um, and creating that environment. I think it's really important. Now, how are we doing as society? I think the mass, um, what, what, what do they talk about? You know, the mass uh, exodus, uh, all these people who are quitting their jobs. The great uh, resignation, I think. Is yeah, what they it's, call it. forcing, it's forcing companies and management to say something has got to change, right? We've been doing it wrong. And, uh, and everything you hear is, is they're, they're becoming more oriented around uh, employee well-being, 
around this environment of trust and things like that. So I think we're moving in the right direction. All right. Um, another one that's, uh, you know, a hot topic, right? Uh, when I talk to LND leaders, a lot of times they have really great intentions. They have, they, they've built out a plan on how to kind of, you know, train or better help their employees learn rather, but uh, they, they hit a sticking point, right? Which is budgeting. So it's, it's difficult a lot of times for them to get budgets for typical L&D activities, right? So what can L&D leaders do to gain that internal buy-in or get the sponsor on board for learning yeah. technologies? Well, so, so there, there, there are two levels to this. Um, one is, uh, you know, how do you get the, the buy-in for specific initiatives? And then how do you get the buy-in for sort of investments that are, you know, foundational, your LMS, your LXP, your things like that. So, so it comes back to linking whatever we're doing to some transformation. Um, and if we're, if we're part of some transformation, well, then, you know, it's an investment in that whole transformation and the learning piece is a part of it. Um, when we kicked off our data and analytics program in 2019, the idea came from L&D based on uh, a visit that we had made to another company with, uh, with our consultant. It gave us this idea and we said, this is what we need to be doing. But we had nothing in the budget that year for it, but we knew we couldn't wait for the budget for next year. And so, you know, my boss at the time literally went around and sold um, senior execs on this program and on getting the funding, which was not insignificant. And it took her about six weeks to get everything together. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we were very successful in that way. So it, when you can tie it into some transformation that the business is trying to achieve, that's a lot easier to do. Um, and also, usually, it's easier to show the, um, you know, the results at the end because, because you, you know, they're interested in measuring uh, the transformation. Um, and I guess I'll just add as an insight there, which is, so often people come to L&D and say, I need a training on this. And uh, I'm a strong believer in the five whys. Why do you need that training? Why do you need this? Why do you need... So you dig that back down so that you understand what really is the problem and what really is the change we're trying to, to achieve so we can focus on that. The second, on, in terms of the investment around those foundational layers, um, you know, I don't really have any... Uh, secret uh, on that. I think it's it's like any sort of major capex. You've got to you know run your numbers and show how it's going to you know have some um, positive impact, and then you've got to you've got to pilot it and uh, and you know sh show that the results are going to be going to be real. But it it is difficult. There's no question. Yeah, I, I want to just unpack the softer KPI piece as well in terms of getting budgeting right, which is ROI. Uh, it's about employee engagement, cultural environment, et cetera. So how can L&D leaders kind of work more towards that when, uh, uh, you know, building a proposal for a learning technology on the, on the softer KPI piece? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about when we were, you know, making the justification for our LMS, which was a significant uh, expenditure. In my particular case, when we were trying to make these investments, um, we, we didn't have these initial ones, the, the, the LMS and then some, some content, we didn't have too much pushback, but I think it was because we, we had been under-investing up until then uh, at the group level. And there was this recognition that with digital, we could do a lot more. And uh, uh, also, 
you know, the LMS was, was supported because it was going to allow us to better track our regulatory um, training and st- things like that. Um, but I remember hearing the um, chief learning officer for AXA say at, a couple of years ago at a conference, the ROI for learning is employee engagement, which is very, very true, right? I mean, that ultimately, you know, what we offer, the, 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 the paths for development that we offer people is something that builds our employer brand and builds the engagement of our people. But then it's very hard to make that link from, you know, uh, you know, fr- from there to, you know, some, some payback or what cost is justified. I think it also, you know, the justification tends to be, I would guess, very specific to the, to the company and the specific priorities they've got going uh, and, and their, their, you know, recent history, because there may be some problem that they're trying to address. All righty. That's, that's very helpful in understanding that more. Um, now, how can organizations engage uh, their kinds of businesses or business units in, in learning and development in order to improve their performance part? Well, again, it, it just keeps coming back to um, getting engaged with the business. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, either we, the, the identification of the things that we need to do from an L&D point of view um, come in either two directions. Either one, L&D has the idea and we have to go sell it to the business like we did in our case of data and analytics. Or we go to the business and we say, what are the priorities? And then together we brainstorm um, what we can do um, to address that problem. And the latter is, um, well, both are very effective. But again, it, it, it's really important to focus on not the creation of learning deliverables, you know, and not the counting of hours and the counting of number of people. What is the change we want to see happen? Um, and, and then focusing on that and reporting on that, uh, gathering the metrics on is the change occurring? Um, every time we do that, uh, we, we get a lot of engagement with the business. Now, we don't, you know, I'll say it's saint Gobain. We don't do that well universally everywhere. We have some countries that do it really well, like Brazil. Um, we have uh, some parts of our, of our you know, corporate Sangaban University that do it uh, better than others. Um, but what is very clear now is, is that everybody is in, in Sangaban University is recognizing and, and is behaving that way, that, that everything has to become a conversation around what is the behavioral change that we are trying to achieve? What is the, the outcome we are trying to achieve? How will we measure it? What's our baseline today? And how will we measure, how will we know whether we've improved on it? And then we step back from that and identify, well, what are the things that we can do to make that happen? And, and, as, I said, and as I said, many of these things are not, um, you know, the, the, the solution is not building a learning program. It could be something as simple as Teams collaboration space. I'll tell you a story uh, that I, when I first came into L&D, like 2011 was when I heard this. In fact, I might have still been even in IT at the time. And it was about a, a big uh, supermarket chain here uh, in France who was, they knew that the way within the, the fish counter, where they sell fish in the supermarket, that the layout, the display of the fish counter, the quality of that display had a big impact on sales. 
And every week they would rank all of their stores based on sales from the fish counter, you know, and they had their top 10. Uh, but they had, you know, they had a huge disparity between the top 10 and the bottom 10 and everybody in the middle. And they wanted to improve it. Now, a typical L&D organization would have said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll train everybody to do exactly what the leaders are doing and make that a requirement. And, you know, we would have sort of fixed in stone this one thing and it would have been imposed on people. And what they did, and it would have taken us a year to build it. And what they did was much uh, smarter. They created a social platform and they encouraged the, the, the store, the, the, the counter managers every week to share a photo of, or video of their countertop. And now when they had the, you know, they had the listing from the top to the bottom, people could click and see, well, what was the layout of the, 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 the counter like? Um, it took them a few weeks to put this in place. Um, everybody bought into it, which was one of their concerns was would, would people, you know, not want to share, but they were, they were very pleased that they were being recognized for what they were doing. And they significantly raised the, um, the, the performance across the board. So it was not a training fix. It was a, you know, a, an intelligent way of getting people to, um, uh, to, to share information and to raise a bar and to do it in such a way where it was also, you know, it changed over time. It was flexible. It could accommodate changes in what works during the winter versus the summer. That, that, that story really left a mark on me about how we think about um, building, uh, you know, creating change in our organizations. Yeah, that's that's actually very insightful, but I appreciate you sharing that. I'll, I'll remember that story too. A slightly controversial question now, which is, should organizations enforce technology training on their employees? Um, not controversial for me. Uh, now, did you say technology training for employees? That's right. Systems training and technology training. Ah, okay. Okay. Because I would have said, you know, mandatory training never works. Um, and the only time that I tolerate it is when it's, you know, regulatory compliance types of training. Or, you know, I think onboarding training, you know, you want to make sure people know what the culture of the company is and things like that. Technology training. So, that, so that's, that's an interesting one. Because as we made our switch to Microsoft Teams, you know, we rolled out a major um, transformation program that had lots of training elements in it because people have to learn the technology. We did not make it mandatory. On the other hand, um, we did an extremely good job of building champions and building buzz around it, that there was a huge demand um, for the new suite of tools because it, it takes a while to roll that out to 200,000 people um, and a demand to participate in these um, workshops. And our communications campaign was all about, um, you know, that this was not a change in tool. It was a change in how we work together. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was, it was hugely successful. Um, and, uh, you know, probably partly due to, uh, the COVID crisis as well. So, so, you know, mandatory never works because mandatory always makes people push back. Um, I think it's better to try to create, you know, the pull for, for massive programs like that by making it exciting and making it uh, limited. Yeah, but I, I actually double click on that. So I had spoken to uh, one, one learning leader in the UK last week and what he mentioned was 
uh, you know, we tend to confuse training or learning rather with schooling, right? So learning is different. And, and I think we just hit on that. Right? You can't force it. But if, if you kind of help them understand it's part of a process, I think then there is better acceptance of it. And I think it's, it's more with what, what they do on a daily. So I think that that is something that's definitely uh, helpful to understand. Now, yeah. Wasn't it Winston Churchill who said, you know, I love learning, but I don't like being taught? Yeah, I think he did. So yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So that's right. And uh, same on, on that note, today's learners, you know, we expect, I say we because I'm a um, never ended learning. I think we, we spoke again. You also are someone who kind of keeps learning. So as learners, do we expect knowledge delivery to be instant, uh, contextual and, and experiential? It's more about, you know, how we use Netflix today or Uber. Do, is it is it the instant gratification culture that's set in? And would you like to share your thoughts on how to meet these expectations? Um, good question. Um, um, I think um, you know the, the young the young people coming in. Um, they come in with very different expectations and behaviors. And, uh, you know, I, when I say young, I see people who are, let's say, under 20, 28, 29, 30. Because most good sort of, you know, university engineering type of training today is going to be project-based and is going to be, is going to require them to learn how to go out and learn on their own and, and find their own learning. And the younger generation, even growing up today, you know, where they, they've grown up in a world where every answer to every question you could imagine is already out there on the internet, just waiting to be found. Um, they have that reflex of solving problems themselves and going out and educating themselves and, and the growth mindset. Um, and and uh, for other people, you then sort of, you know, have two mindsets. There's the person who just says, oh, I can't do it and, and waits. And then the person who says, oh, I can't do it. Who can I turn to who can maybe help me and, and, and maybe find some stuff? And this is where, again, I think our Yammer communities and our team spaces are really helpful because it's a place where people do naturally tend to turn to. They do not naturally come to the LMS, uh, even when it comes time sort of for looking for learning, at least not at, at, at Saint-Gobain. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, we say the Netflix generation, it's not like, you know, instant, uh, what's the word, everything handed to me on a plate, but it's the fact that on Netflix, I can find, you know, there's just so much out there that I can find and I can consume and I can, I can satisfy my, my, my curiosity, uh, you know, quickly. Yeah, that's right. I think it it has impacted, uh, but in the way. Uh, people are expecting to kind of receive their, or rather the time for knowledge discovery, that's really gone down, right? So the expectation is to be more instant. And like you said. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Is it, is it you know, if they, they, if they ask a question of the organization, they want to get a response fairly quickly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, so we'll move to more uh, a rapid fire round now. Uh, and, you know, simple answers in maybe one word or, or a sentence about. So we'll get to that now. And I'll start with the first one, which is, how do you become more problem-focused and less solution-led? Um, so I'll come back to, I think I mentioned this earlier, is the whole five whys of uh, digging behind the expressed need to really understand what the, the real need is. And that helps us really focus on what the underlying problem is and then to think about what's the best way to you know, find a solution to that problem. All right. Uh, what would learning and development look like without traditional training? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
Uh, and there's sort of a flip side to it, which I always ask our people is, you know, when does a startup company decide they need a chief learning officer or they need an LMS or they need a, because they have this culture of continuously learning and, and whatever. But I'd say what the world would look like, what learning would look like would be apprenticeship, which is what you do see in, in startups is, um, you know, everybody helping out everybody, everybody else. Um, and you give me the opportunity to, to, to share one particular value that I have right now, which is the number one role of managers today. And this comes back to our trust and empowerment is to be, is to understand in what direction their people want to grow as individuals and making sure that they're continually giving them some stretch assignment that takes them in that direction. Most of the time, our managers just want people to do what they've always had them do, right? And there's no stretch. They have to, the best managers are, are not just trying to get the job done. They're trying to find opportunities for people to be stretched and to therefore grow. Because that's the only way we really grow. All right. And what's more important to you, Bart? The problem or the solution? Hmm. Well, you know, it's good to have a solution to your problem. But I, I was listening to a podcast uh, or reading an article one time about, I believe it was the CEO of Tata Steel, who said, uh, yeah, we want, you know, the solution finders, you know, but what we really want are problem finders, right? Find the right problem and then, you know, we can, we can in, invent the solution. Um, it's similar to saying we want people who are asking the right questions. Um, so I think that the, the, the recognizing what the problem is, is really important. Alrighty. And what can leaders do to transform soft skills? Lead by example. Uh, Stephen Covey's walk the talk. Um, <clears throat> and the, the most important example comes during time of stress. It's very easy to be this wonderful manager when everything's going well, when things start to go bad, people regress to, you know, their, their, I don't want to say their true selves, but their default behavior. And that's where um, the real, you know, uh, values come out. And uh, so leaders have to demonstrate it all the time. They have to be exemplary in that. All right. And um, this is something we ask all our guests on the podcast. What is that one word or phrase that comes to your mind when you hear digital transformation and adoption? I know I thought about this before. Um, the first word that comes to mind is fear because that's the biggest barrier we have for any sort of digital transformation and adoption. Um, to me, when we talk about, you know, the digital divide, it's not generational, it's not uh, national, it's not whatever. It, it is based on those who are fearful and those who are fearless. Uh, those who, you know, when they get it, when they see new, new technology, they sort of embrace it. They look at it. They want to understand what it can do. And then those who say, oh, no, more technology. And they just try to get in, get their job done and get out. Um, so there's fear. But then, OK, so how do we overcome those things? How do we drive this big, important digital transformation that we're trying to achieve? You drive it by by getting people to take that first small step and continually nudging them to take another and another and another. Um, so fear and nudging. All right, great. That's just perfect. Um, we have come to the end of yet another episode of the Digital Adoption Show. 
Once again, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Bart. Uh, amazing conversation and something that I'll remember for a while. Before we close, uh, Bart, is, uh, if it would be great if you could share how people listening to this podcast can reach out to you if they have any other questions. Um, the easiest way is to reach out to me uh, on uh, LinkedIn. I should know my LinkedIn handle, but I don't. Uh, but it's, you know, Bart Shuta, uh, probably all attached. And, um, and then I'm also on uh, Twitter. I'm not as active a poster as I'd like to be, but, um, but, but I'm very connected on, on Twitter. And my Twitter handle there is at Bart Shuta, all attached. Thanks. And I can add, uh, Bart's not difficult to find on social, so you will find him for sure. Uh, a lot of, lot of videos that I've seen of Bart as well, interviews that he's done on YouTube, so do check them out, listeners. And um, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here, Bart. Thanks so much, and thanks for uh, thanks to everybody listening to this podcast. And stay tuned to the Digital Adoption Show for more great content and some really incredible speakers. And that's a wrap. Thanks, Bart. Thank you, Arjit. Bye-bye. <laughs>